and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for today's show, where I chat with Cal Fussman. Before I do, I want to give a quick shout out to Vic, who owns a company called Alternate Thursdays. And the reason we're shouting out Vic today is because Vic opened up his podcast studio for this interview to be conducted. I was in Los Angeles for the All-Star Game, NBA All-Star Game weekend, and Vic had a studio that Cal and I went over to, and it's in a warehouse space. And as soon as we walked in the door, Cal started to grill Vic and find out about the equipment he's using, about the the wood that he uses to create soundproof audio quality. And you'll notice that the audio quality in this episode is probably the best audio quality we've had in the podcast. So a shout out to Vic for opening up his studio to two strangers. And Vic is somebody who is extremely well-versed when it comes to podcasts. So give him a look online and thanks again to Vic. And that brings me back to Cal. So as soon as we walk in the studio, Cal is just extremely curious. How did you do this? How'd you create it? Where does this stuff come from? And that really speaks to who Cal Fussman is at his very core. He's a curious guy and he is an interviewer. He's also been a best-selling author, a speaker, and he has an amazing podcast called Big Questions where he's interviewed the likes of Tim Ferriss, Dr. Oz, Kobe Bryant. So his podcast is definitely worth checking out. But Cal has written amazing books, New York Times bestsellers, and he's interviewed some of the most influential individuals in the world. I'm talking about one name type of individuals. Ali, Bezos, Serena, Wooden, Pacino, De Niro, the list goes on and on. So Cal is somebody who's been with a number of intentional performers. So he'll share some of his insights that he's gathered from those people. And he'll also share how he thinks about asking questions and the art of the interview in this conversation. And at his very core, he is a curious guy, but he's also an amazing storyteller. And you'll find that out pretty quickly in this conversation. The last thing I just want to make note of is this conversation starts where we just 
turn on the mics and just start having a conversation. So this is a little bit different of a format than what we've done in the past. And I think it speaks to how Cal makes people feel comfortable when they meet him. He is somebody who's a connector. He has a massive heart. And while he wears many hats at his very core, I think he's just a great human that likes helping people get to where they want to go. He's very coachy in that way. So thanks to Cal for coming on. And I know you're going to love this podcast. So when you do, go over and follow Cal on Twitter. He's very active there. Uh, Certainly follow myself, at Brian Levinson on Twitter as well. But we need you to share conversations like these. Conversations that spark curiosity, that encourage curiosity. So share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever you're social. And if you could also write us a review on uh, iTunes, it really does help us out. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Cal Fussman. Live with Brian. I need you to be my hype man and just like, because <laughs> I, even today at breakfast, I was thinking, I'm like, man, like, Cal, I could use Cal to just walk around with me at all times and introduce myself because I just struggle. I'm like, how do I introduce myself? How do I say it? All that sort of stuff. Why, like, why do you struggle? With what I do. Because like, there's a lot of different ways that you can go down. I think there's a lot of different ways you can introduce what I do. You can say, like you even psychologist, do you say coach, do you say, like, how do you say it? It's motivator. Like, motivator. Like, I, uh, You're not a, mo- not a motivator? I wouldn't say it like that. Yeah. Strategist? Yeah, I think strategist is pretty cool. Well, what, what at the very essence do you do? Yeah, it's coach people. Um, I, the problem I have with motivator is... Like you think that's too cheer cheerleadery? I have a hard time thinking that I'm going to motivate somebody. Like I think they have to motivate themselves. So I'm helping them figure out how to motivate themselves. That's how I think about it. But you can inspire. You can inspire. I'm a big believer in inspiration. Yeah, inspire. Inspire. I I would like to inspire people. That that I can get behind. That I can dig. You know, the other day, I went and met. A woman named Little Misty, Little Misty, L-I-L Misty, and Little Misty was born with spinal bifida, uh, so her spinal column did not align properly, like at birth, and she had twenty-eight operations, and got addicted to painkillers, and at one point was uh, almost homeless and could barely walk to the mailbox. And she forced herself to walk to the mailbox. And not long after that, she entered a 5K race. And now she is running these Spartan obstacle races all over the world, climbing eight-foot walls. I mean, this woman is midway up my chest, and I'm only 5'5". She's definitely not 80 pounds. And she's chucking spears. She is pulling sleds. It's amazing. And after I met her, I was highly motivated. I was inspired. So I I believe that what you do can be motivational. Now, I, I agree. Maybe that's touching something in me that's saying, Cal, get motivated. But having an outsider come in and spark you is a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, I, I think for me it must be around the idea of motivational speaking and the notion of like, we're going to bring this person in, they're going to motivate you, then you're going to go off on your own, and, you know, how sticky is it? Um, so, I, yeah, I think I'd go back and forth on that because I do a lot of public speaking. I love speaking, and I do share inspirational stories like the one you just shared with Lil Missy. Uh, and I do think it can inspire people and get people to shift how they see the world. And I think that is fascinating. But I think motivation comes from within. Um, so that's why that word to me is a, it's a big word. Uh, but inspiration, I, I mean, I think we all need inspiration. I don't think any human ever gets to where they want to go without some sort of inspiration. Was there a moment in your childhood that you knew you were going to become what you became? No. No, I, I didn't. I, I think of my childhood, I was very unsure of what I would become. I, is, are you talking about career-wise? Well, I guess so. <laughs> I think, like, career-wise, like, I... Well, what did you want to be? when? If I was looking at you at seven years old, what do I see? Probably, I, I don't think I was clear on that. I don't think I, I, I didn't have clarity around where I wanted to be be career-wise until I was 24. Did you love sports when you were seven? Love sports. Okay, so that, that was a given. That, that was. So I think sports was always, yeah, at seven, I probably wanted to be John Stockton. That would probably be the point guard for the Utah Jazz. Interesting. So basketball, but like you. So most people want to be Michael Jordan, you want to be John Stockton. Oh, yeah, we were running, me and my buddy Adam were running pick and rolls in the, in the front yard, uh, on the driveway. Yeah, I love John Stockton growing up. I also liked, it's interesting you say this, like I always liked underdogs. I was always drawn to underdogs. Like my favorite basketball player was a guy named Jerome Williams, whose nickname was the Junkyard Dog, who um, I remember sending him a uh, a letter in the mail and he sent back an autographed picture and I put it up. He played for the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> the Junkyard uh, Dog. That's, that was me. But I want to go back to you because this is, you coming on here, so I oh, want to find okay. out more about you. Sometimes I, I forget. Yeah, I'm you sorry. already. I, you have that hat on, and I know that hat is is. And I don't mean the it's literal curiosity. Hat, the yeah. Curiosity. Uh, so you mentioned Spartan races, right? And earlier this morning we were together, and you said that you're participating in that, and little Missy participated in that. Where does that come from? What? Do you, why are you doing that? That's not an easy task. Explain to people what that is, and and how you're training for that. So, what happened is. I was given a motivational speech uh, a little more than a year ago in Las Vegas. And my manager says, you know, Cal, while you're there, there's an- another guy who's speaking. His name is Joe DeSena, and he's got a podcast. He said, I think it would be really good for you to go on. So I said, sure, but I'd never heard of Joe DeSena, and Joe DeSena had never heard of me. And so we both show up not knowing what to expect and immediately hit it off. And Joe DeSena was a guy or is a guy who grew up in Queens, uh, kind of in a, a tough guy. You know, Where like, did you grow up? I grew up in Long Island, not far away. And uh, it was, he grew up in a like mafia neighborhood. And his mother met a guru (laughs) and became enamored with that kind of lifestyle. 
And so she started bringing all of these new age spiritual people into Joe's life. So you, you can imagine this marriage of good fellows and the gurus <laughs> in your living room. And when you said gurus, like what kind of gurus? Uh, like people who do yoga, people who are thinking about health and the the best way to live your moments in life. And so Joe begins to follow his mom while he never loses that part of him that's his dad, which is, that's the interesting thing. He's, he's two people in a way. He's like a great businessman uh, who was basically tutored by guys in the mob, although it was just in a regular business, uh, not mob-related. I'm going to get in big trouble here when it's a thing. Joe DeSena is going to be <laughs> tracked by the FDI. No, he, FBI, no. He runs a very clean business, and that business is called Spartan, and it's a series of obstacle races that are run all around the world. And Joe basically has a mission in life to save 100 million people because he looks around and he sees people sitting on couches. He sees people not exercising. He sees people eating horribly, and he wants them to eat right and exercise. And these Spartan races take it to an extreme. And at the furthest extreme, they have what's called an agogi, which is, it could be like a 72-hour race. That I don't even know if it's got like a finish line. It's like when Joe decides we're done, <laughs> we're done, which of course attracts a lot of people. And you've got to do crazy things like you're, it could be on the Great Wall of China and you have to uh, take your shoes off and your socks off and you're walking barefoot over rocks while you're carrying rocks on your shoulder and uh, anything that Joe can think of to make you miserable, Joe has thought of. So what are you signed up for? So what happened is I realized while I was interviewing people, a group of people who lost a lot of weight. And when I mean a lot of weight, a guy, men and women who were 400 pounds, 500 pounds, up to 600 pounds, that they all had this moment, like an aha moment of if I don't do something now, I'm done. And so I'm interviewing all these people and I realize, you know what? I am never going to get that aha moment because I'm overweight, but not that much overweight. You can look at me and I kind of look normal, but really I should lose 18 pounds to, to be at my peak. And I'm just going along and I'm going along and I'm going along. And if I keep doing this and I don't start exercising and I don't at least modify the way I eat, 10, 12 years from now, some not nice things may happen and I won't be able to do anything about them then. And I also heard, somebody told me that medical technology is advancing so fast that if we anybody here can get 
can live for 15 more years, you're guaranteed another 15. Medicine will take care of you. So these next 15 years are really important to me. And I, I needed to do something to get myself moving again. I'm sorry, my phone is uh, not on airport mode. No and worries. so that may... It only shows this podcast is authentic. <laughs> it's true. Right? I know people joke about podcasts. They're like, well, there's sirens in the background. Hey, we're not editing it. It's, it is what it is. So we'll roll with it. These, these podcasts are beautiful. Yeah. Because they're not, they're not perfect. They're authentic. They're real, genuine. And you can sit in and listen to two people talk and exchange wisdom and come out the better of it. And you can plug it into your car and you can be stuck in traffic and you can park your car when you're done and be better for it. I'm, I'm not knocking radio. I always love radio, but it doesn't, it's not the same. It's, it's not the same. It's not, I don't think radio is trying to elevate anybody. So you just recently started your own podcast and I don't know how old you are, but, um, I'll just give it space if you want to share. No, I'm beginning Act 3. There you go. <laughs> Fair enough. And so a lot of people in Act 3 wouldn't try to do something um, different like that. Like a, a podcast is different. There are people that are your age that probably don't even have a smartphone to listen to a podcast, right? Well, most of us have smartphones now, but like Larry King, who I have breakfast with every morning, the broadcaster, he doesn't have a smartphone. So there you go. And it, so, so my point, my question really is like, why, why, why go into that medium? You're, you're a fantastic writer. That's been a craft of yours. You're now doing speaking. Why have this sort of third wheel? And I don't, there might be other elements of you too, but, um, why go into podcasting? What's the motivating factor for you or the drive behind it? Well, a lot of my life occurs just because of a chain reaction of people I've met and my curiosity taking me in new directions. I I had no idea that I would do well as a podcast. I didn't know what podcasting was. I didn't know that I had a voice that people liked to listen to. And I had an amazing experience, and you've been privy to it because you had breakfast with us this morning uh, with Larry King and... A young guy came in. His name is Alex Benayan. Seven years ago, uh, he was sitting in his dorm room at USC, freshman, pre-med student. A little background, he is the child of immigrants, and he was raised to be a doctor. So much so that when he was six years old, And his parents sent him out for Halloween. They sent him out in scrubs. I mean, this was really deeply imprinted in him. You are going to be a doctor. To a point where he had no other thoughts. Uh, There was no writing a basketball player and looking for for an autograph. He knew, I will be an M.D., until his freshman year in college, he's got a big stack of biology books and he's opening them up and no, <laughs> he doesn't want to be, a, doesn't want to be a doctor at all 
or maybe he wants to be a doctor, but he's not going to get through those biology books. It just doesn't interest him. So he starts to think about this word success. And he starts wondering, like, what were the most successful people doing when they were my age? I mean, if he could figure that out, maybe he'd kind of have a road for himself because he was completely lost. It, it was a really rough time for him. And so he goes to the library at UFC and he starts taking out books on Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and uh, doing research on Lady Gaga and Pitbull and a bunch of other people that he viewed as really successful. And he couldn't find the information that he was looking for. And he realized that, oh, I need to write the book that I want to read. And that set him off on an adventure to meet Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Lady Gaga and a host of other people. He thought that it would be as simple as, well, I'll, I'll just send an email and tell him I'm a young young guy in college and look They'll send an autographed picture back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and he had no idea how difficult it was going to be. And in fact, we were talking about it this morning. The best thing he had going for him was a huge reservoir of naivete. Uh, because if he had really known what he was going to have to go through to write this book, I don't think he, he would have done it. He, how, do you, how do you make sense of that? Because I think that's a really fascinating thought for everybody to think about. How do, how do you think about that as it relates back to you? Well, it's, it really comes to the answer the question. And unfortunately, when I answer questions, I do in stories. So it'll be like 18 more minutes till we get to the end of the story. It's a podcast. We have, we have 18 minutes. There you go. So my overlap when I'm looking at this is that I didn't start out thinking, well, I'm going to be a podcaster. Uh, it's a lot of little steps that happen and meetings that occur that bump you into different people that take you on a pathway that you didn't even know existed. And then all of a sudden you're behind a microphone and starts to feel comfortable. And so the same thing happened with young Alex. He's out in the world, and he's trying to meet some of these very famous people. And he, he actually is, does meet some, and he's slowly moving along. And he realizes that at a certain point that even when he's meeting them, he doesn't really know how to interview. And so it's... And, it's terribly disappointing to him to finally get an interview with Bill Gates and you get 45 minutes and not know how to grasp that 45 minutes and get the best out of it. And so he came back to L.A. and he was sitting at a Whole Foods, I think on the curb with his one of his best friends, 
And they were talking about how difficult it is to learn how to interview. Nobody realizes how hard it is until you have to do it. And as they're talking, Larry King goes by uh, into the Whole Foods. And his friend says, like, dude, this go talk to Larry King. Maybe he can show you how to do it. <laughs> and so eventually Alex gets up and goes running after Larry King. And Larry says he can come to breakfast. And I have breakfast every morning with Larry King. And so basically, to cut to the chase, when Alex comes in to talk to Larry, he asks Alex, like, why do you want to talk to me? Alex says, I'm writing a book. I've helped Larry write his autobiography. And so Larry says, well, if you want to write a book, all you got to do is talk to Cal. And then he looks over at me and says, like, Cal, can you give the kid five minutes? So I say, sure. And I sit down with Alex. And I think my first question to him was, are heroes dead? And we got into a long discussion that almost turned into an argument about it. Wait, I'm curious. Why, why would that be your first question? I don't usually go around asking people that, but my feeling is, okay, I'm talking to somebody who is young and about to write a book, so obviously they, they're attempting something that's pretty crazy. And I just thought that, and I don't even know that I thought. Sometimes questions just came out, but when I look back at it, Probably the question is sort of a screener question. I'm watching how he's responding to that question. Uh, are we going to get into a deep conversation? Or is he going to shrug his shoulders saying, I don't know. How would you answer that question if I pose that to you right now? Well, my take on this and my opinion actually changed were that yeah, he, heroes were dead. And and my feeling was a hero is somebody that all the world knows. Like Nelson Mandela was a hero. Muhammad Ali was a hero. To many, not in Russia, but Mikhail Gorbachev was a hero for helping take down the Berlin Wall. Uh, some can see Steve Jobs as a hero for all he created. Some could see Bill Gates as a hero for everything he created and the philanthropy that he does now. Everybody knows these people. And what's happening is the world is being fractured in a way as it pertains to the media. And so a lot of those people that I just mentioned are dying out. There is no more Nelson Mandela. There is no more Muhammad Ali. Will we have another Muhammad Ali? I don't know. And I don't think so. And so I asked him this question, and he came back with a completely different response. Like, of course, heroes are alive and well. And I, I said, like, well, who's your hero? And he says to me, Tim Ferriss. Hmm. And I said, Tim who? He says, Tim Ferriss. And I said, Tim, he can't be a hero. I don't even, I, I never heard of this guy. 
And I said, oh, no, you don't understand. Tim Ferriss wrote The 4-Hour Workweek. You got to read this book. It's going to change your life. And the amazing thing is that Alex did introduce me to Tim Ferriss. And Tim Ferriss did change my life because he put me on his podcast and it got like a million listens. And not only that, but so many comments saying, Cal, you got to start your own podcast. And I'll be completely honest about this. I have no problem sitting and talking, interviewing someone, talking. But the idea of coming in with audio equipment and doing a sound check, making sure everything that, is right and doing it quick with somebody who's an A-list name sitting down, it, it would have made me really nervous. And so I just kept it at arm's length. Why, why would that make you nervous? Because you're around those people for your whole career. Imagine. It's very different. How you doing? Having a conversation where, oh, hang on. Let, let me see if I can get this in right because now I'm doing something that I'm not good at. The technical side of That's it. That's right. And one of the things in this whole process that I realized is uh, I just basically had called myself an old school guy and laughed at the fact that I text really slowly with two thumbs. And I, when I met Alex, I didn't have a Twitter account. I didn't have a Facebook account. He, he had to help set these things up for me. And so this, this process of meeting this young guy basically set me on this course and all the people he introduced me to pushed me down different roads that led to the podcast and led to me speaking. And because I was speaking, then I met Joe DeSena and I heard of Spartan and that's why I met Spartan races. So it's really step by step by step as opposed to sitting down and having a long view of, oh, I want to be a Spartan racer and competing in a gogi for 72 hours straight. No, it's, it's not that at all. It's I'm just on a journey. We'll see where it goes. But the beauty of sitting down and asking Alex that question is that you just rattled off five different things that he's been able to give you, even though he was coming to see you as Cal, the writer and the person of wisdom. And then look at how much he's been able to reciprocate in a mentee role. It's It sort of flips because he has usefulness that he's brought to you. I think there, there's beauty in that story. Yeah, they, we were both mentors to each other. And I I would have to say, we just saw the galleys of his book this morning. It's called The Third Door. I would have to say that however I helped change his life, and that includes like years of editing the words, the chapters again and again and again. I mean, hundreds of times. Because, yeah, I remember he, he wasn't a writer. He was a college student. And 
so a lot of time was spent into the the making of that book and I told him at the start I said I am not going to write a word of your book you're going to have to do it by yourself and it was sort of like being Mr. Miyagi in a way and I I said there's just a few rules here you're going to have to rewrite until I say you're done rewriting and if you stop rewriting before I say you're done rewriting, then I walk. You'll cr- In a way, I was like Joe, the, the obstacle course guy, saying, there's no finish line here. You're going to have to crawl through the mud till I say there's no more mud. And it's interesting. I never realized what was going on because now I'm volunteering to crawl through the mud. And Joe is taking me on his own adventure. But I, I think really what it comes down to is being willing to crawl through the mud. Or are you just going to say, you know what? I got it made or I did what I wanted to do and I'm just going to ride it out. So how would you answer that question if posed today? Uh, if Alex was sitting there and first question he asks you is about heroes, how would you answer that? Oh, I would say Tim Ferriss is definitely my hero. (laughs) (laughs) And how would you define a hero? Well, a hero is somebody who helps to lift you up. Pretty simple. Why why would you have thought that that did not exist when you first met Alex? The difference is when, when my definition of a hero encompassed the whole world. So I couldn't perceive as a hero being a hero to only three people, which, you know, could happen. You could have somebody who lives on your block who does an amazing thing, and it's heroic. But my point is, if 99.9% of the world doesn't know about it, they really can't be a hero because that person's really not affecting them. So that was really where we disagreed because what he's saying and where I came to believe is just like everything else in society now, the world is just getting fragmented. And so you're going to have to take your heroes where you can find them. But I'm curious about this because Ali today is looked at as a hero but he wasn't always by our society. Some of our society did, some didn't. Jobs, certainly uh, controversial in his own right. Um, So I want to just go a little deeper with this word because I think it's a really strong word. Like for me, my hero is very clear and had nothing to do with impacting the world, just had to do with impacting me. Who is that? My dad. Okay. I don't don't think there's like... uh, I don't even think there's a close second. My mom, my mom's, my mom's second. But like, um, see, but like, I've never met your dad. I've yeah. never seen your dad on TV. How could your dad be a hero to me? He can be a hero to you. Yeah. So maybe we're looking in the wrong places for our heroes. Well, I say take your heroes wherever you can find them. Yeah, that's fair. A hundred percent. I guess 
really my definition. Because you said uplift someone that can uplift someone. Yeah, and that's like a, a mom and dad is a great example. Uh, but in, in the way I saw it and the way I envisioned the word hero, it was somebody that everybody knew had those characteristics. Everybody was lifted up. Or even if you weren't lifted up, maybe you hated the person. You still had to understand what they had accomplished and understand why other people might call them a hero. Yeah, the, the I mean, the place that we go to in our country for that is usually the president of the United States. And we don't need to go into politics per se, but there's definitely a segment of the country that looks at Trump as a hero. And there's there definitely, and when Obama was elected, there certainly was a big segment of the population looked at him as a hero. So I'm just, I, I'm, I'm curious because I think heroes can also be seen as villains depending on the optics of the person. Ali was hated by half of the country and beloved by the other half. But everybody knew what he stood for and what he meant. And later on, the 50% who hated him had to look at him and understand, oh, I was wrong. So, so can we dive a little deeper into those people that you have been across from? What are the things that you see? And they're all different and they're all unique, but what do you see them being clear on? Uh, what, what is it that they do stand for? Uh, and, and I know I'm painting a, a broad brush, but you've had the luxury of being in a room with a lot of the people that you named as heroes. So I'm just curious, as you sat across from some of these people, what were things that you might have picked up on or noticed? All of them stepped out of their comfort zones. There was nobody um, among the 400 people that I've interviewed for Esquire's What I've Learned column that I would I would say stayed in a safe place. Another quality is generally they all got knocked down and they all got up. And so those are pretty simple characteristics, but if if you don't have them, you're not going to be among the elite. And and talk about your journey a little bit. So how has that approach impacted you? Have you tried to live your life? It sounds like you have challenged yourself to be outside the comfort zone. I know you got into a boxing ring with a pro boxer. That's pretty uncomfortable for most people that are not pro boxers. I know you've traveled. Journey is a big word that I've heard you say. So how do you make sense of the way that you've lived from a from a comfort level and also from a getting knocked down and getting back up? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question, and it makes me realize that I've lived my life in a way that, in my own way of approximating some of these other journeys, because I've always woken up wondering, where am I going to go next? Uh, You know, I had a choice when I was about 21 years old. I had gone to journalism school at the University of Missouri. It's right in the middle of the country. did really well there. I got a job right out of school 
at one of the best newspapers at the time, the Miami Herald, is like a writer's newspaper. And a year later, I got a call from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which was a really good newspaper. And the pitch was, Cal, uh, we'd like to bring you in as our sports columnist, but we can't do it right now because you're only 22. And the guy who was hiring me was smart enough to realize that he had a staff of mostly 36-year-olds and older, and to bring in a 22-year-old as the daily columnist was going to be bringing an uprising of sorts. So he said, look, just come in, and you'll be the second guy on everything. You'll cover the baseball Cardinals. At that time, they had the football Cardinals. Uh, every Everything uh, that we do, you'll be in on, and then you prove yourself over time, and then you step up. And so it sounded great to me. Uh, that was what I thought I was going to do when I was young. Yeah, you asked me when I realized. When did you realize you wanted to write? I can't remember a time where I didn't know that that's what I was going to do. I I can remember my dad coming home from the train station. We lived in Long Island, and he would arrive pretty much the same time every day, and he always had the New York papers, like the afternoon papers in his hands. And my brother and I would run out to try and get the papers first. How 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 much older or younger is your brother? Uh, he's like three years younger. And so that's how I saw myself as writing the the column in the sports section of a big-time newspaper. Because when you did that back then, I mean, there was no ESPN then. Who were the people that you enjoyed reading? There were characters like Red Smith and Dick Young and Larry Merchant. Uh, these are people that now probably... Uh, well, Larry would be most remembered because he went on to be a commentator for HBO, a boxing commentator. Uh, but back then, to be able to write a column in a newspaper is like you were the mayor. Uh, you, you were privileged to go into the locker room and meet all these athletes, know what was really going on. You wrote about it and went out to the restaurants and people treated you like the mayor. You were Mr. Inside. And Was that what drew it to you, is the ability to get inside the locker room to, to, to see it? Or what do you think the draw was from a writing standpoint? Well, from, from a writing standpoint... The writing in newspapers, I'd, I really have to go back and study this, but when you saw Red Smith write something, it was on a very different plane of what you're looking at now. Uh, it was, it was in, in my view, at a higher level, but that might have been because I was 10 years old and looking at it. I don't think so. I think Red Smith was a great writer, and you can find books written by a guy named Jimmy Cannon, who was a, a columnist, and see that 
writing was just different then. It, 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 there was an art to it that I don't think people see that in the newspaper now. And now when we want to know what's going on in sports, there's either ESPN or uh, the NFL network or the NBA network. And and so these columnists don't have the the power that that they used to. But back in the day, it was it was a great life. I mean, you you're basically paid to watch sporting events, write about them, and then go out to eat at restaurants around the country and go to the bars and it it seemed great to me. What did what did dad do? My dad worked for IBM for about 28 years. He was a manager. And so he basically got on the train same time every morning, came home on the train same time every night. And so I wanted a life where I was out meeting different people all the time in different places. And Was mom like that at all or did you? No, they were pretty much situated at home. They didn't have uh, grand ambitions. I think it was more a matter of, you know, you're, you're talking about the end of the World War II generation where you tough things out and you make a home and support your family and give your kids the opportunity for a better life. So that's what my dad was doing. He was setting the table for my brother and I. And how about your brother? Is he a journeyman like you? No, he turned out more like my dad. He's a sports editor at a newspaper in Jacksonville, Florida. But you both got the the newspaper sport bug. Yeah, that's that was my dad. That was my dad. Uh, we grew up in the 60s where sports had more meaning then. I mean, like, you can look at fans now and I, I I say this it's kind of a hard thing to understand and, and maybe part of it is hard for me to understand because I'm not 13 now maybe if I'm 13 and I'm looking at some of the NFL players kneeling down during the national anthem that's a big thing however you feel about it, one way or another. All, all I know is, like, in 1968, if you turned on the Olympics and you saw John Carlos and Tommy Smith go up to the victory podium and raise their arms, John Carlos's right arm, Tommy Smith, I think it was the left, with black gloves on them in their fists... It it was something that everybody talked about all day. And a lot of the 60s was like that. That was all Muhammad Ali was about. So basically sports was so tied into race. It was so tied into television. You got to realize there was no... Uh, it was, when I started watching TV, it wasn't in color. There was like no slow motion replay. 
there were, you could not watch football teams from around the league on a Sunday. There were basically three, three networks. And in New York, you could watch a giant game playing somebody or a jet game playing somebody. You, you didn't have all these possibilities. Everything was really kind of tightly locked in. And yet it was exploding in a way. And that was the time I grew up in. So you wanted to be part of that explosion. But what I'm hearing from you is also the story within the sport, right? Like the raised fist, Ali's, who, the human side of Ali. Um, it sounds like you were really drawn to finding out th- those stories and sports was sort of a platform in which it was happening under. That's a great point. And not only that, but it was a platform that everybody wanted to read about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, back then, Sports Illustrated was an amazing publication. I mean, brilliant writing. Again, I'd have to go back and look at it now. But you had people like Frank DeFord, and later on, Gary Smith. These were brilliant writers taking on these subjects. And so it seemed perfect to me because... I could get to meet all the people I wanted to meet and write about all the things I wanted to write. And there was a good market for it. It's a, it is an interesting time that we live in right now where certainly we have Twitter and we have quick clips. We have 24-hour news cycle. Like, we certainly have the instant not, I want to say this the right way, not the well-thought-out, edited content, not not that sort of deep journalism, right? Um, but the flip side of that that is also going on is you have you definitely have this short form. People are reading headlines and that's it and, and they're moving on with their day. But you also have podcasts, which is what we're doing. You also have, um, like the Players' Tribune is a really interesting medium where you have these players working with writers to tell their side of the story and going really deep. And these long-form exposés, you have someone like Bill Simmons who is just, you know, writing really long-form. So it's an interesting time because there's, there is a world and a space uh, the HBOs of the world, or, you know, there's so much content now that's, that is quality. Um, but then on the other side, you've got these quick hitters. Um, so just from a, someone who digests this stuff, I think it, it's just an, it, they're, they're very polarized in the way that you can receive your content. Well, that's, that's a good thing. When Gary Smith used to write pieces for Sports Illustrated, he would take four months to spend the time to find out about the subject he was writing about. And that makes a big difference. Because if you show up and you talk to somebody for 20 minutes, (laughs) you're going to get a different story. These podcasts, I find, are great because if you do want a deep dive with somebody, you can hear somebody for two hours or three hours if you're listening to Tim Ferriss. And I I find that wonderful. Now, part of it is figuring out your day. If you're going on a long drive, obviously it works. 
Uh, if you're going to the gym, you have to figure out your timing. But I think people are just as curious as ever to know what's going on deep down. So there's always going to be interest and a market in it. It's just that on the surface, the the quick hit seems to have won. Uh, And maybe it didn't. Maybe the podcasts are just standing in for what used to be available. And we can... We can get deep. Look, another example, and I haven't seen it, but a bunch of people sent me these uh, videos that Tom Brady put out right before the Super Bowl. I hear they're super. I, I thought they were super. It's on my list to see. But, and to your point about the Players' Tribune, Tom Brady is now in a situation where he can say, you know what, I know who I am. I know what I do. And... I can bring a camera in and I can show the world. I don't need somebody who really doesn't know me to come in and write about it or edit it or film it. And then it goes out there in a way that I don't really think is me. But you just had Kobe Bryant on your podcast. Why do you think Kobe is willing to do that? Well, that's probably goes back to the beginning of the conversation where you asked about, or we were discussing a step-by-step-by-step by step by step approach as opposed to, I'm going to do this. I, I never, years ago, sit around and thought, oh, I'll start a podcast and Kobe will be my first guest. No, it, it it didn't happen. What happened was I was in my car and I got a call from Kobe. And this was before he was retiring. He was in his last season. And he is a very curious guy. And he already had plans to go into storytelling after his NBA career ended. And so he was just calling me up to find out what my process is in an interview. It was simple curiosity. Any idea how he got your number? Well, let's see. I, you can, anybody can go to my website and then <laughs> contact Kevin, the manager. And the funny, the funny thing is, if when it's somebody like, Kobe Bryant, I might think that Kevin, the manager, is playing a joke on Yeah, me. it's a joke. But it wasn't. And so we met, and we had a great conversation. And I was really stunned to see exactly how curious he is. And that led to another conversation, uh, and it led to an interview that we did at uh, Summit in L.A., which was last November, in front of hundreds of people, uh, which led to, or the content of that interview led to the storytelling around uh, the animated short that that he made called Dear Basketball, which is now up for an Academy Award. And so right at the time that Dear Basketball is up for an Academy Award, 
I am starting a podcast because Tim Ferriss kept nudging and nudging and nudging. And so it was a logical step to just say, hey, Kobe, you want to come on? And we'll talk about it. Why do you think he's interested in storytelling? I think a lot of people don't realize how he was raised. In Italy, he was studying the classics, like in Latin. And so he was thinking in mythical terms as as a boy. And even before that, you know, his favorite book has been Curious George, like the children's book. And so you had curiosity and a education that was steeped in some deep, serious stuff that he's learning in a different language because his dad played over in Italy when he was a boy, he went with his dad, and now he's being educated in Italian. And why are you interested in storytelling? I just see everything in life through the prism of stories. I can't, it's almost hard for me to understand how you couldn't. Now, some people see the numbers that way. I I don't. Some people can get excited by a PowerPoint presentation. I need a beginning, a middle, and end. I need vulnerability and a character confronting that vulnerability and seeing where it takes the character. That's, in my eyes, beauty. And it's it's hard for me to listen to to somebody if they're if what they're speaking about doesn't have like a story underneath it. It may be my own form of ADD. You get lost. You wander when that's happening. Well, I'm just looking for the story. Like, what makes this great? Because facts are facts, but. It's what's underneath the facts that makes it great. You mentioned that you're in Act Three in your story. Yeah. Is there is there a climax that you would you would say, um, you know, as you look at your life, is there is there a climax of it, or, or are we still working on it? I don't. I don't really see it that way. I just see it in terms of like the first. Oh, twenty. 22, 23 years were spent doing what a lot of other people do. Uh, I grew up in a nice middle-class neighborhood, went to a good school, University of Missouri. Then I got out and wrote for good newspapers, the way people would start a career path. And then at that point, my life took a turn and I started to travel. And the reason that happened was I was working for this amazing startup magazine called Inside Sports, which not many people know about now. But uh, back in the day, Sports Illustrated was just seen as the top level of magazine journalism, great writing. And Inside Sports was established to compete with it. And I was able to get in at a really young age 
at 22 on the ground floor. And so now I'm hanging out at night at the bar with Hunter S. Thompson, the Gonzo journalist, and David Halberstam, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and all these great writers that are coming through Inside Sports. And it was just a magical experience. The only problem was that, like a lot of startups, it was an artistic success, but not so commercially, and it went belly up. And so there I am at, like, 23, looking around saying, what what am I going to do now? So you had hinted earlier that this opportunity to work for the St. Louis Dispatch came about. You'd be second, um, sort of behind these other guys, but you get to do a lot of work. Did you end up not taking that job? No, I took it. Okay. And... I did it for a year, and then there was a moment, I don't don't need to tell the whole story, uh, but there was a moment where I realized, okay, if, if I stay here, I will never leave. Hmm. And shortly after I had that thought, and I loved St. Louis, I had in a little more than a year, made great friends. There's this bar called Llewellyn's in the Central West End where I used to hold court at night. And it was really a beautiful experience. But I I was just at a point where you can almost see, yeah, I am succeeding. I am going to get what I wanted. But is that what I really want? So there's a pattern emerging, which is, you say with the Spartan race, like, yeah, I'm not overweight, but 15 years plus 15 years, can I, how can I maximize almost my life? Um, You've been able to shift when you're comfortable. Uh, Any idea how that works? Can you give insight in there? Because I agree with you earlier. I think about, let's just use weight and fitness wise. I think you have people that can get really ripped and look great and they see the results of their exercise and their fitness and that just becomes a lifestyle for them. And then you have other people on the other side of it who it literally is a life and death situation and they have to do it. But there's a whole lot of people in the middle and I, I think of myself very similar to you in which like, all right, I'm healthy enough, you know? So I work out enough, but am I fit? No. And should I be in better shape? Yes. Um, so how do you nudge yourself when you when things are good to say they're good, but I think I can make it better? Well, in my case, I always go off on some grand adventure. So it's something will happen, and I'll challenge Julio Cesar Chavez to to fight when he's 87 and 0 with 75 knockouts and junior welterweight champ of the world. Very logical. Uh, Just to see what happens. (laughs) And thank goodness I'm still here to tell the story. Thank goodness he had a good spirit Uh, because, you know, he could have killed me. Would you call yourself a risk taker? I guess so because most people like my dad... When he saw me in that position in St. Louis where I was on the cusp of being the columnist and basically every my whole life was set up. All I had to do was just keep coming into work every day and enjoying my life. And basically it was done. Yeah. How did he react when you told him? He was not happy. Yeah. Not happy. But 
to my dad's credit, he always kept a distance and just kind of shook his head in disbelief uh, to this day. But he, he realized he couldn't stop me, so there's nothing he can do. But I think that we're living in different times now because back then, if in 1980, 1980, I would have said, I am staying in St. Louis for the rest of my life. I love it here. And I did love it. I could have wrote it out. I mean, St. Louis, uh, uh, my career would have basically been done. Obviously, newspaper industry is in a, a tough place, but who knows? Maybe I would have started doing some radio. Maybe I would have opened up a sporting goods store. Not that I ever thought that way, but maybe somebody would have approached me and said, can we use your name? And I, when I think back, I I really see that it was a pretty monumental decision to just say, now I'm packing all my stuff in, in my little, little Honda and I'm driving to New York. Don't even know where I'm going to live yet. And we'll see how it works out with this magazine. There was a cool video that just came out from 60 Minutes with Jeff Bezos. And he talked about that he, he did in 1999, the video was, and he talked about doing a regret analysis and that he often, you know, goes through processes to say, what will I regret when I'm 80 years old based on this decision? So once again, I just want to try to get clear around when you do make those decisions, is it based on make, making sure that you're not going to regret staying or is it like, how do you think about it? Probably like this. I want to wake up tomorrow morning not knowing what's going to happen. Hmm. If I stay up in St. Louis, if I stay at this newspaper in St. Louis, which I loved, I know what's going to happen pretty much every day of my life. I may not know if the baseball Cardinals are going to win this year, and maybe that becomes what is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But... I know where the stadium is. I know what time the game starts. I know what time the copy's going to be due. I know the bar I'm going to go to after. And I know who I'm going to be seeing. But that's that part for you is scary. Yeah. it's. I like the idea, and this is why when I started to travel, it became almost addictive to wake up and not know where you're going to be sleeping that night, who you're going to meet. I I would have no idea. And so I just love... You felt alive. Yeah, you wake up every day. You don't have no idea what's going to happen. And I would get on trains, and I had hardly any money. And I would look for empty seats next to somebody, somebody who looked interesting, Somebody who I thought I could trust. Somebody I thought who might be able to trust me. And then I would pick just the right seat. And once the train started rolling, 
a conversation would start in. And where would you be? What Like all over Europe? Yeah, it started in Europe, and it went all around the world. So some of these places, they're not speaking English. No, which made it... I mean, this is how I learned to interview, because this is where body language, tone of voice all comes in, and you're playing a game of charades. And when you both win at charades... Like, you're bonded in a huge way. And so basically I'm on this train and starting up conversations with people. And I know in my mind, by the end of this ride, I got to get them to invite me to stay in their home and or else I got no roof over my head. And so that started. And then once I went, to some of these homes. Uh, parties always started. I was an excuse for... From their point of view, I was an excuse for a party. Here's this American Yeah, y- look man. who I brought home. <laughs> look at this guy. He's got stories from everywhere. And... Why do you think they trusted you? I think a lot of that comes down to body language and tone of voice. And, and so... When people ask me how to interview, they always want to know, what's the questions? And it's hard for them to understand that I could give them a question that I would ask and they could ask the same question to the same person and not get the same answer. Do you think that's a gift or do you think that's something you developed from your environment growing up? Like, where where did that come from for you? Well, I think if you go around the world for 10 years... And every day, somebody new is trusting you. And trusting you because it's, it's like confidence or anything else. Once you've been successful at staying at somebody's house, the next time you get on the train, you're going to get better at it. And not only that, you don't even have to get better at it because once somebody's invited you home and had a party and everybody's had a good time, then they're going to want to send you to their cousins and relatives in distant cities. And so now I don't even have to convince anybody to take me home. I get on it. They're putting me on trains. And when the train stops, somebody is waiting to take me home. Can you remember the first time you did that? Well, the first time it happened and how I learned about it, because I didn't know this existed. So this was a thing that people did. What happened was right after Inside Sports went down, this other writer that I was talking about, Gary Smith, he and I took off for Europe. And I was a few, I might have been a month behind him or so. He was over there. And... He had this in his mind. Uh, he, he was at a place where he married very young. And it was, they, they were the wrong people for each other. And they were kind of locked in and wasn't working. And so once he, once they separated and he went to Europe, he was in a space of, I want to be out there and seeing what this whole world has to offer. So he got on a bus in Italy 
and without knowing where it was going. I'd have to ask him if he bought a ticket to a certain place and then just got off midway. And then he just started hitchhiking. And he was picked up uh, by a crazy guy uh, who was playing the music to Psycho Killer, (laughs) but who was a really wonderful guy and who took him to a small town in Italy where Gary was immediately embraced by the whole town. So he spent a bunch of time there, and they they put him up, they fed him. And I, then I arrived in Europe, and we met, I think it was in Munich, for Oktoberfest. And... We're saying, well, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And he's saying, oh, there's this little place in Italy. You got to check it out. And so he took me there and he told me that I just bought a ticket to the bus and then got off and started hitchhiking. And so I realized, ah, this could work. (laughs) This could work if if I want to keep this going. But you, but you, uh, I think about hitchhiking versus being on a train and looking around and figuring out, all right, who, who looks trustworthy or interesting. Hitchhiking, it's whoever decides to pick right. you up. It's That's very right. different. I, I, and I, I don't, I don't recall doing too much hitchhiking. Most of it was me. And you got to realize I'm doing this over 10 years. So most of it was me really carefully looking at people. I always make a joke of how if I'm walking down that aisle of the the train and I see a beautiful woman and she's smiling at me and I notice, and I'm single at that point, I notice that she's got no rings on her fingers. I mean, like supermodel good looking. And there she is, like looking right at me. She's curious because she could tell I'm not from these parts. And... Most people would think, go for it. And I never did. Why? Because, let's face it, there was no way she was taking me home. (laughs) All you got to do is look at me. Uh, Now, as it turns out, I found out many years later, I was probably wrong about that. Uh, I remember interviewing the model Petra Nemkova. And she showed up for the interview a little a little late and we started talking and it was supposed to be an hour and a half we must have spent like three hours talking and then she was inviting her friends we really hit it off and I said to her at the very end I said you know Petra I have to apologize to you she said what for and I said well it's to you and to like a lot of other beautiful women And I explained how I would never sit next to the beautiful woman on a bus or a train because I know you're not taking me home. And she looked at me, and she did something really wonderful. She took my hand in her hand, and she said, well, that's okay, Cal, uh, because tonight I was late, and I came and I sat down next to you. Nice. Uh, but there are other there are other examples I can tell you. I remember talking with the actress Cat Graham, a very beautiful woman, and telling her the same story, telling her 
about what Petra said. Cat says to me, like, you asshole. And I said, what do you mean? She said, okay, so look at it from my point of view. I'm sitting on the train next to an empty seat. You're walking by. I would like to talk to you. We can be friends. We may be friends all our lives. And you walk on by. You won't even talk to me. Mm. And then some asshole sits down and tries to pick me up. And I got to spend three hours listening to this guy. So I have this thing that's lingering in my mind. So you're, te- you're there for 10 years. Well, it was off and on because I'd come back home, see my parents. It's so not would like you I'd... be at wedding, friends' wedding, stuff like that? How would you even know? Some, like, I missed... Babies, like... I missed a lot. Yeah. I missed, I missed a lot. I have a whole blank slate of music in America, of sports in America, you know, stuff that happened in, like, 1987. Any relationships get get lost? No, people were always happy to, to see me, and it was always, I'll see you when I see you. And then the other part that I'm trying to wrestle with is, but every morning you have breakfast with Larry King. That that seems very habitual. It's very planned. Right. It's, and then you, you're training for this race. I, I'd imagine there's habit that has to go into that. Right. So how do you marry habit with feeling that journeyman aliveness on a daily basis? Well, in between those two points, I met a woman in Brazil and we got married. And you meet her when you were on a journey? Yes. And she's Brazilian. She moved to the United States. And then babies start coming. And routine starts to reach into your life. And I made it as unroutine as I could. I was out spending a week with Muhammad Ali or meeting Al Pacino or Robert De Niro or Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos. So a lot of people wouldn't think that was routine, but still I was coming back to the same house and I was reading children's stories to my son's kindergarten class. And I was, in in some respects, living a routinized life, but since I was always traveling, it it was kind of a tug of war. And then the interesting thing, and they the kids did not like me traveling. And what happened is I moved out to L.A. to help Larry King write his autobiography. Where were you living before? I was in New York originally, and then moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina for about 10 years because my parents lived there. So it it was a great place to bring up the kids. Uh, We all loved it there. Then when I moved to L.A., uh, my kids were starting on their teenage years, and that's when I realized this is the time that I really got to be with them. And my son was a kicker on his high school football team, and I went out and helped him practice kicking every day for years. 
it was really a beautiful experience. Um, and that was a time where going to breakfast with Larry every morning really started to put some discipline and routine into my life. So the podcast is called Intentional Performers. And as I think about your journey, I think about the intention that you had, uh, the intention to start a newspaper career, the attention, intention to go on a journey for 10 years and, and see where it takes you, the intention to adapt and adjust from that. Um, is there any time where you felt like you were unintentional? And was there a time where you felt like you weren't living the way that you wanted to? Well, I would have to say no, <laughs> because when, if I reached that point, I always went to somewhere new. I, when I was traveling around the world, I loved every day. And then one day I met the woman of my dreams and that caused me to settle down and then three children came out of that, and I loved the process of watching them grow. I'm sure you've read this book or watched a movie, Into the Wild, um, and I'll spoiler alert, I'm going to say the end of the movie if you haven't seen it by now or read the book by now. I'm sorry, it came out a long time ago. But at the end, the character is dying because he ate poisonous berries, and he's journaling the whole time, and um, he writes, happiness only real when shared. I agree with that. Uh, I think... I'm trying to think of moments where I felt joy, where there was nobody attached, and nothing really comes to mind. Even in a solitary process like writing, where it's just like you and the words and... You can keep chiseling and chiseling and chiseling and get something that makes you feel good. That can bring you joy. But if nobody's going to read it, what's the point? The last thing I was curious about is you have this energy about you. Uh, I remember the first time we chatted on the phone. It was a Saturday. It was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. And... Usually when you talk to someone who you've never talked to before, you go, hey, this is Cal. Hey, this is Brian. But you pick up the phone, hey, Brian. And you've even done it throughout our conversation today. Kevin, the manager, or eh, this is Brian's podcast. There is an energy and aliveness to you. Where does that come from for you? That's a good question. I, you know, my, my dad... is much more reserved. My mom was somebody who loved to talk with family. And I suppose to somebody who was listening to her, they might have felt that. I don't, I don't, I'd have to think more about where that came from. But it wouldn't surprise me if it came from that time of travel, of waking up every morning 
and not knowing what was going to happen because if I'm thinking back to the moment that we started to talk, I'm thinking, where's this going to take me? Where's this going to take him? I don't know. Let's go find out. And so that's where I guess my essence is. It, and it, it really comes from curiosity. Because I'm curious to know what's going to happen. And I'm excited to know. And it just doesn't seem to be as much fun if I was just stoic about it. Hello, Brian. How are you? <laughs> doesn't do it for me either. So I want to wrap up by giving you a platform to share where the podcast is. You're on Twitter. And anything else you're passionate about that you want to share, uh, if there's a foundation or a nonprofit, uh, I'm just going to give you a platform so that we can help get out the things that you care most about. And uh, then we'll wrap up. You know, it's very interesting when I think about charity because I really, my mind was really moved by somebody who is, runs an investment firm. And the way he invests is like 20 years down the road. So most people in that line of work are looking for people to come and invest their money with him. He's basically telling people, look, if you're not willing to just sit back and trust this over 20 years, like, don't, I don't, don't give me your money. Because I, I, I'm not going to be here taking phone calls from people saying, like, why did you do this? over something that's going to bounce back in two months. And he went to Ethiopia. He met some young people. And he realized that he could help these young people. And he realized how much it cost to help him. Help them. And when he realized that, he realized, you know... If I raise like a certain amount of money, I can basically save this country. Hmm. And so what would happen is other people would come at him and say, can you write a check for this? Can you write a check for that? Will you come to our auction? And he'd go to the auction. And afterward, they said, why didn't you bid on anything? And he just, in his mind, every spare penny that he had was going to help the youth of Ethiopia and literally turn a whole country around. And it really affected the way I thought. And so, like, I just put in years uh, helping young Alex, Alex Benayan, write this book. And that was, uh, it was a tremendous investment in time. And I'm um, grateful for every second of it. And so I would I would say, if, especially if you're young and you're looking to see how people succeed, you can't pick up the book now because it's not coming out to June, but it's called The Third Door and you can pre-order it on Amazon and 
this this young guy basically for for seven years walked through a lot of mud to bring out these nuggets of wisdom. And I think everybody who reads it will get a bit will get some benefit out of it. So I would encourage I would encourage people to look into this book, The Third Door. And as for my podcast, just started. It's called Big Questions. Big Questions with Cal Fussman. And I guess you can do that on iTunes and Stitcher and a lot of the other platforms. And I feel just as I'm heading into Act Three, that this all along is the place that I was meant to be. This is going to be the marriage of going around the world without a home and routine. This is going to be the balance. Uh, Now my kids have grown up, off in college, and my wife and I have a sense of freedom again. And I'm able to go wherever there will be interesting people to talk to. And I'm going to talk to as many as I can. And perhaps that climax is still somewhere out there. Oh, I don't even, I can't even see the top of the mountain. (laughs) And uh, who knows, who knows where this is headed. But I, I'm so fascinated by this podcasting space because I think it's giving people something that they they really couldn't get before. And more and more people are talking about it. And I think we're only at the start of something big. Cool. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. You can follow Cal on Twitter at... Cal Fussman. <laughs> of course. Uh, Cal has a website, calfussman.com. And then I think the podcast is calfussmanpodcast.com. Does that sound right? I think it's, Or just go to Big Questions with Cal Fussman. And we'll, yeah. we'll put everything in the show notes so everyone can find it. Uh, Instagram for me is intentional underscore performers. Uh, and Cal, I just want to thank you. Uh, you picked up the phone and chatted with me um, about writing a book and, and just help me start to think a little more strategically and get a little more clarity around that. So I appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate your stories and I appreciate you sharing your stories with the world because sometimes people just keep those to themselves. And so it's a gift for you to share those stories with people like me and, and to my community as well. So thank you very much. Well, who knows, maybe seven years from now, you'll be autographing your own book and we'll be, clinking glasses and laughing about it. Thanks, Cal. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I just see everything in life through the prism of stories. I can't, it's almost hard for me to understand how you couldn't. Now, some people see the numbers that way. I... I don't. Some people can get excited by a PowerPoint presentation. I need a beginning, a middle, and end. I need vulnerability and a character confronting that vulnerability and seeing where it takes the character. That's, in my eyes, beauty. Beauty.